listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Scripture reading for this morning's message comes from the book of Acts. We've kind of been in Acts throughout this Easter season, following along with the development of the early church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, so early on in your New Testament. This will be Acts chapter 1, and as soon as I find it, We will begin. This is Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. And I'll ask you this morning to rise for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago. Through David, concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, It is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that your word is not an artifact in a museum from the past. It is alive and active, piercing to joints, to separating joints and marrow. I pray that it would do its work upon us this morning, that you would reveal our depth of need, and even greater than that, the boundless riches of God's mercy in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. 
Tracy, I don't know if this thing's working or not, but we can, I'll give it a shot here. Yep, we're good. So I don't know if you can identify with this, but high school is a very interesting time. Uh, I have a lot of memories about high school, some good ones, some bad ones. And the interesting thing about our class was we could never seem to get along. My high school class, Clearbrook Gonvick High School class of 2004, we couldn't get along, so much so that it was our class motto. I knew you wouldn't believe me, so I had somebody take a picture of it for me. This is a picture from our yearbook. Why can't we all, why can't we all just get along? Man, that says something, doesn't it? I don't think it was so much that we were violently opposed to one another, but it was more in the sense that we all had very strong opinions and everybody kind of wanted to do their own thing. There was rarely a time, rarely a discussion, rarely a place when everybody in the Clearbergonvik High School class of 2004 seemed to be pulling in the same direction. And this translated most obviously, most clearly onto the football field and onto the basketball court. We were raided in state my senior year, and there was a good chance that we were going to go to the state tournament, which hadn't happened in a really long time. But we could never pull it off. We got to the, to the I believe it was the subsection championship, and even there, we, we just blew it. And it was a shame because there were so many guys on our team who were really, really talented. Like, we had a lot of really good people on, on our basketball team, but nobody would play together. Everybody kind of wanted what they wanted. They wanted to look out for number one. They wanted to be the one scoring all the points. And everybody just sort of went their own way and kind of just did their own thing. And teams uh, don't really operate when that's the mentality of the players on the team. Now, contrast my high school team with the Chicago Bulls. I know the the gap, I can't, I can't begin to express to you how wide that gap is. Chicago Bulls of the 80s and 90s were a dynasty. Man, I was born in 86, so I didn't, I didn't see a lot of everything from the beginning. But when it got to the 90s, I remember Michael Jordan going into those playoffs. Remember that game that he was sick? He was sick and he played and it was like a, I don't, I don't remember the details, but it was like he just went off and scored so many points. But the Chicago Bulls had Michael Jordan, arguably the best athlete of all time in history. Uh, we can arm wrestle about that after the service if you want to fight me, but objectively speaking, it's true. Um, Michael Jordan. And the thing was, they had him early on, right? Jordan was just a standout from the beginning. He was at Chapel Hill, and then when he came to the Bulls, he had a ton of talent. And so what he did was he would get the ball, right, and he would... What does the, the, the guy with all the talent do? Tries to score, shoot, drive, whatever he's got to do, kind of taking the whole team on his shoulders. Well, that didn't actually work all that well in the NBA until along came a guy named Phil Jackson, coach of the Bulls. And he introduced this thing called a triangle offense. And what it did was it allowed more than one person to shine. It allowed more than one person to be in the spotlight. So no longer was it just Michael Jordan who was the playmaker. 
Now we have Scottie Pippen and, and Steve Kerr and Luke Longley and all these others who become integral parts of the team. And so they, they can pass the ball around. And interestingly enough, it was this particular approach that opened up Michael Jordan to be the star player that he was, right? So this, I want to present to you as being the image of what a team can look like and all of its potential when they're all working together toward the same goal. This is a good quote I found that I think typifies that spirit well. It says, teams win when each person is performing at their best in service of the team's goal. Teams win when each person is performing at their best in service of the team's goal, right? That's a very important caveat there. Today we are introduced to a gentleman by the name of Matthias, the uh, 13th wheel of the disciples, maybe we could call him that. So this is post-ascension. The disciples have, have heard of the resurrection. The women at the empty tomb came and told them, and, and then Jesus ascended. So there's the resurrection and there's the ascension, right? Two separate events. He ascended into heaven before their very eyes, and so this follows on the heels of Jesus' ascension is they go back to Jerusalem where Jesus tells them to wait until he sends his Holy Spirit upon them. And they're there, they're gathered together and they find out there's a, there's, there's a lot going on here with these early disciples. There's a lot of unity and there is a lot of division. There's a lot of unity and there's also cause for division, for separation. So that's what, what we're kind of going to, to focus in on, to zoom in on during our time here together this morning. Unity and division among the disciples, and then translate that to our time, unity and division, separation among the church of God, God's church. So the unity... A lot of times, you know, we look at the early church... And we will often treat it as though this was some sort of perfect, pristine group of people who never sinned. We never say it like that, but you hear movements saying, we need to get back to the way the early church was. Well, have you read about the early church? Like, there's some pretty bad stuff going on. I've dealt with some things, but man, I would not want to have to be the pastor of the church at Corinth. My goodness. So Acts chapter 1, though, we do get a glimpse of some of the beautiful things that are happening as these believers return from the field. They return into Jerusalem, and they're all together, right? The early church is all together. They're worshiping God. They're, they're breaking bread. They're fellowshipping. There's, there's prayer. Listen to verse 14. It says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Friends, one of the marks of a healthy church is that it prays together. One of the marks of a healthy church is that it prays together. Now, when I say praise together, I don't just mean that we're all gathered in the same physical space offering up individual prayers. I also don't mean that we're gathered together corporately as a body saying the same words on screen. 
The word that's used here talks about a unity of, of purpose, meaning everybody is actually praying for the same thing. You can, you can think like they're all praying in the same direction, maybe, right? there, the, Back to the team image, they're all pulling in the same direction. Prayer, and prayer together, and prayer for the same things. This is one of the marks of the early church and one of the marks of a, a healthy church of our day and age as well. I've been a pastor for seven years now, so you better listen up. Good caveat, right? But I've been a part of a lot of different prayer groups, and I've noticed a lot of different dynamics that take place in prayer groups. And oftentimes you'll notice when when prayer requests go around, sometimes the prayer requests are limited to praying for other people which is a good thing, which is a wonderful, God-pleasing thing. We pray for so-and-so who just lost loved one. We pray for so-and-so who broke a leg or, or an arm and they're recovering, right? This is part of what we do. But what I've noticed is that what shows a, a maturity among believers and what shows uh, a unity of spirit is when people are willing to ask for prayer about themselves. A willingness to say, you know, man, I'm having some issues right now. Like, there's some stuff going on in my marriage. I'm not saying it's on the rocks. I'm not saying it's not. But there's some things going on that I need to share because I need the collective wisdom of this group and God's word to guide me and point me in the right direction. Right? I, I'm grieving right now. I, I just lost a loved one, and man, I'm kind of questioning God's presence in my life. See, when you're in a group like that where the dynamics are open and and honest about our own struggles, that is what we're talking about as far as a church that prays together. There is unity, unity of spirit, unity of mind, unity of, of purpose. Now, of course, there's this thing in in Minnesota called Minnesota Nice. It's very real, and I am very thankful for it. The funny thing is, I'm from Minnesota. We lived on the East Coast for five years, and it's taken me a long time to get back, to get used to Minnesota Nice again. Like, to get used to people not telling me directly what they're thinking or saying or being really assertive and in my face about it like they were on the East Coast. And instead, we kind of do this thing where we put on the smile and everything's all good and then it all erupts at the family barbecue or something, right? Uh, Unity of purpose, unity of spirit does not mean there aren't differences of opinion. In fact, one of the gifts of God's body is that we are all different parts and we all have different functions to serve. So we're not talking about unity being kind of a Minnesota nice thing where everything's sort of hunky-dory. And... But what we are talking about is this. Unity means commitment to God's mission takes priority over our own individual preferences. Unity means commitment to God's mission takes priority over our own individual preferences. It doesn't eliminate our own individual preferences, no. But it does take priority over them, and it trumps them, doesn't it? It's a beautiful thing 
when this unity happens. As we read in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 133.1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is. There was unity in the early church. There was also disunity, disharmony. There was division. We learn this because our entire passage today revolves around a particular person, a particular disciple, who I'm guessing later on in the disciples' careers, they were like, we don't even talk about that guy, right? We don't talk about Judas. Yeah. Judas did some, some, some pretty bad stuff, right? And keep in mind, all of the disciples abandoned Jesus at the end. But Judas betrayed his Savior. Judas betrayed Jesus. Man, have you ever experienced a betrayal from someone close to you? It hurts, doesn't it? It takes a long time to get over. It takes a long time to even think about getting over. You see, what Judas did is he separated himself. He went his own way, did his own thing, did what he wanted, and that's ultimately what sin is. It's going against God's laws, disobeying him and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so Judas separates himself from the other Disciples, sin does that. Sin separates us from God, it separates us from one another, and it separates us from ourselves. This is the effect of sin. It separates us from God. Think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. What was one of the first things they did after they ate the fruit? They hid. They hid from God. They used to enjoy perfect fellowship with Him, they used to be able to trust in His love and His mercy for them. Now it's based on fear, and they run the other way. Separation between us and God. Fear also separates us from one another, doesn't it? I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you have your eyes open, <laughs> you, you do. Uh, when things happen that are wrong, whether we perpetrate a wrong or a wrong is done to us, it doesn't just stop there. Very rarely does it just stop there. There's, it's like ripple effects that go out, right? It affects all of the relationships around me. It affects those close to me. A lie is told to a loved one. And that affects the way that they in turn parent their kids. And that in turn affects the way the kids love and care for those around them, right? Sin does this. It divides, it separates, and it creates disharmony and disunity among God's people. Separates us from God, separates us from one another, and separates us from ourselves. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, you think back to the Garden of Eden again one more time. When we were in that garden, when Adam and Eve were in that garden, we were whole, we were complete. There was no division within our own hearts. We fully loved, trusted, served, and obeyed God, right? There was no tension. There was no desiring to, of our old sin nature to, to lead us astray. We were made in God's image for perfect fellowship with Him. There was no division among ourselves. 
But then the fall happened, and now there is. Now there is wrestling and there is tension, and we have things like anxiety and depression, these things that we would diagnose, we would diagnose as being purely physical, mental, psychological phenomena, but in fact are spiritual at their very root because they are the effect of sin. We are divided within ourselves. And in fact, there's a tension that goes on between believers now. There's a tug of war that goes on in our own hearts because though we are fully Christians, though we are fully believers, though we are fully righteous in God's sight, we've still got that old Adam. We've still got that old sin nature that tugs and that pulls at our hearts. And so there's a war, there's a wrestling, there's like a civil war going on. You could think of it like that. Now, I want to point you back to our text again today, to this really, really uh, gross part. This is chapter 1, verse, this is verse 18. It's talking about what happened to Judas. With the payment Judas received for his wickedness, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Man, did we need to know that? I mean, other than Luke being a physician and wanting to be very detailed in this, like, did I really need uh, to know about that? Well, I love what Karl Barth says about this. He, what he does is he brings a spiritual dimension to it, And he talks about how the body of Judas was in such contradiction, meaning Judas was, was, was fighting and warring within himself and, and the good and the bad, and it got to such a point that his body couldn't sustain itself, and it burst apart. Listen to this. Judas' creaturely being could no longer endure the monstrousness of the contradiction in which he had enmeshed himself. And so it had to explode like a released hand grenade. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? Judas' creaturely being could no longer endure the monstrousness of the, condition, of the contradiction in which he had enmeshed himself. And to one extent or another, that contradiction within ourselves is something that we all experience and that we all feel tugging at us in this fallen, broken world. Sin causes separation. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Sin separates us from God. I wonder if you've ever had a similar thought to, to this. Um, I'm all on board with Jesus. I'm on board with the faith. I'm on board with Christianity. But that whole church thing, like those people, those sinners among whom I am the chief and the foremost, right? Man, life would be easier if we didn't have to deal with other people. 
So sometimes people will say, well, I don't need the church. I have Jesus. Well, Jesus would tell you, yes, you do need the church. We need the love and encouragement and forgiveness that happens corporately in community. Even if you can't sing, even if you can't hit a note, you can encourage your neighbor by them just hearing your voice. You see, separation, it only furthers the divisions. It only furthers the, the pain that we experience. It's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to be injured by it. Sometimes we think it's just easier to kind of separate and, and, and do our own thing for a while, but then you realize, man, this is not how life was intended to be. We were not meant to be alone. We never were. But there is also good news here. Because in spite of the way that sin divides us, divides our own hearts, divides one another, divides everything in the world, God is always seeking to bring unity. He's always seeking to bring wholeness. He's always seeking to bring those lost sheep back into His fold, to throw them over His shoulder and to rejoice over them. See, this is the God that we serve. And we see this in our story today. We might think, well, what's the big deal? There were 11 disciples. Isn't that enough? Well, originally, there were 12. There were also 12 tribes of Israel. And so to go back on that would be to take a step backward And Scripture had to be fulfilled, so they decided that there needed to be a 12th disciple again. And what does God do? He does what He always does. He takes that broken group of people who had just been betrayed, who were hurting, and He brings wholeness. And He brings healing. Not partial, but complete in total, he brings in this gentleman by the name of Matthias. By the way, random thought here, so go to sleep if you want. Uh, how weird would it be to be Matthias? Right? Like you see Peter, James, and John over here talking, and they're like, oh, do you guys remember the time that Jesus, and Matthias is like, no, I wasn't there. Remember that time he turned water into wine? That was awesome. He's like, well, I wish I would have been there. Talk about being on the, on the outskirts of a group. But God brings him in and he uses him to fulfill this number and to restore the disciples to their full completeness. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason, wrong verse, wrong chapter. Chapter 2, verse 13, 14. Let's try it again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I know many of you have brought your Bibles and now I'll ask you to open up your Lord of the Rings trilogy to volume one. Sorry, I, I got I to gotta come up with other illustrations, but man, I've, I've warned you guys, you got to get used to the Lord of the Rings stuff. The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, the very first of these books, there's a group of men and elves and hobbits and dwarves that all come together for the one purpose of destroying this terrible ring of power, right? Well, what happens is this ring of, of power, it exerts a certain force over people, over the person that wears it and over the people that are in its vicinity. And one of the men, his name's Boromir, he becomes overcome and overwhelmed with this desire for the ring and for power and to use it. And in the end, what happens is Boromir, he betrays Frodo, who's the ring carrier. He goes after him. He tries to take the ring. Luckily, Frodo is able to get away and they are able to save Middle-earth in that way. But we see Boromir there, and, and he's on the ground, and he's, he's grasping at leaves, and, and you can almost see in his face this inner contradiction between what he knows he should do and, and what he's actually doing. His desires have, have overcome him. He's betrayed his fellowship, his friends. But he gets a chance to redeem himself because the bad guys come. And they start attacking this group of his friends. And what does he do? He stands in the gap. As he beats down opponent after opponent, he gets shot with an arrow, knocked down, gets back up, shot again, goes down, gets back up. And he takes down many, many of the bad guys before he finally sacrifices his own life. And in doing so, he restores a sense of, of fullness to the fellowship with the sacrifice of his own life. You see, that's what Jesus did for us. That's what he does for us. It's through his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross, he makes us whole and complete and as we should be. He loves us unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. He doesn't just love in a generic sense. He loves each and every one of you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how much he loves you. He spread his arms wide on the cross and he died for you. You see, God is always working to restore unity to his church. This ragtag band of sinner saints united only by the shed blood of his beloved son. Though our default impulse is to separate, to do our own thing and go our own way, lost sheep that we all are, the default impulse of our good shepherd is to go after that lost sheep, throw it over his shoulder and bring it back to the fold. 
Because God loves you unconditionally. He forgives you completely. And he restores you to a perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father so you will never have to spend another moment separated from his gracious, merciful presence. In the words of the Apostle Paul, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.